This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show today. It's Wednesday. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about things going on in your life, anything and everything. I'll do the best I can. You need only to call. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340 340- 9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. Again, I remind you, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. I'm a little sad today. Uh, Part of my childhood growing up was gone. I got the news that Spencer Davis of the Spencer Davis group died today. Um, Every time I hear his music, I'm 13 years old again. And um, um, I just hope he was a Christian. Sure he was. I don't know that for sure, but one can hope. Hey, tonight here at Calvary Chapel, very special Bible study, at least it is for me personally. Um, We're going to finish Genesis 22 and Genesis 23. And Genesis 23 is so rich. It's a chapter that people just sort of skip over. And uh, we're not going to skip over tonight. I may be going for an hour and a half, but we're not going to skip over it. It is a blast. So you can join us at CalvarySA.com and watch it live stream. Or we always have room on uh, Wednesday nights, so you can come and join us in person here at the church. Well, while we await your phone calls, let's get right to some questions, and then we will see what the Lord wants to do today. Um, this is a question that I mentioned at the end of the program yesterday. I thought I could do it in a minute, but I couldn't, but it was sent in anonymously. And he or she says, uh, I just found out that one of our Bible teachers at church is a Democrat. Should I stop attending his Bible studies? Um, anonymous, being a Republican or a Democrat, or a Libertarian, or anything else really uh, isn't the litmus test for being saved, for going to heaven. Um, if he is a qualified Bible teacher, is he, if he's a gifted Bible teacher, um, then, um, and you're being blessed, you're growing as a result of his Bible studies, then I don't think you should stop attending his Bible studies. Um, but if he's not um, a gifted Bible teacher, well, then then not because he's a Democrat, but there's a lot of other reasons that you should stop attending his Bible studies. A couple of things. One of the things, and I think this is a place where Christians ought to be able to sit down and talk about these things. I don't know how you found out that he was a Democrat, but maybe you ought to sit down and talk with him. Say, you know, I've been coming to your studies, and somebody's told me you're a Democrat. How could you be a Democrat? They're, you know, you're pro-abortion, you're pro-gay marriage, you're pro-all these things. And, and that seems to me inconsistent with the things you've been teaching us in our Bible studies. So don't do it in a confrontational way, but do it in such a way that it'll open a door. Now remember, one does not have to be a Republican to be a Christian, nor to be gifted to be a Bible teacher. But this is something that's bothering you as a Bible teacher. This isn't a question that he ought to shy away from. 
you're probably going to get all of the same answers. You know, well, I'm just so tired of Trump. I think he's a terrible person. All the things that we hear all the time on our on, on media. But what an opportunity to open a door. You get to know his heart. He would get to know your heart. And maybe there could be an understanding. Isn't that really what Christians ought to pursue? Pursue peace? Pursuing reconciliation? When you say you just found out that he's a Democrat, then my question would be, how'd you find out? Was it gossip? Somebody else in the Bible study tell you? You wouldn't believe. You see, we've got to remember. Now, please don't hate me for saying this, but God actually loves Democrats very much. And I think what we need to do is get our politics out of our relationships. And that way, Jesus can be the center of those relationships. Yeah, I got a lot of problems with the Democratic platform. At the same time, um, who am I to judge another servant? And the same thing, Anonymous, is true for you. So let's start thinking about being pro-Jesus rather than being anti the opposite political party that you belong to. So I hope that makes a lot of sense to you. We need to get off Facebook. We need to get off of the other social media platforms where we're focused on uh, a, a candidate as though he is going to be our savior instead of remembering that Jesus is in control. I promise you that on November the 4th, Jesus is not going to be surprised at who won. I promise you on November the 4th, Jesus is going to be still in control of this world. And he's going to work all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. We also know that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. So I hope that helps you a little bit with some perspective. Um, but, But let's really try to look at people who are created to love God, they're, they're, they're offered salvation because God loves them. And stop thinking about them in worldly terms. We're told by Paul that we're not to think any longer in these terms, to view people from the perspective of heaven. Here is a question from Brian. Pastor Ron, was it fair for God to harden Pharaoh's heart? Uh, Brian, if you'll read that passage in Exodus, those those chapters in Exodus when uh, Pharaoh's heart is being hardened, you will notice that, and I'm reasonably sure that the numbers I'm giving you are correct, but seven times Pharaoh hardened his own heart before it's ever mentioned that God hardened his heart. In fact, um, you you can go to Exodus chapter 3, the 19th verse, uh, where God says to to, uh, Moses, I know that he will not let you go. So God knew exactly what Pharaoh's response was going to be. So seven times, Brian, time after time after time after time, Pharaoh refused to bow a knee to God. Even though he knew that God was powerful, even though his own people were begging him to let them go, we can't resist this God. And even in those moments where he was for a second ready to do, okay, they can go, he would change his mind. So seven times he hardened his heart. And finally, the Bible tells us that that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. All that means, Brian, is that God gave Pharaoh over to his own hardened heart. You know, Brian, it's the same way for us. God lets us choose how we're going to respond to what the Bible tells us to do. And the more we sin, the harder our hearts become. The easier it then becomes to sin. And um, there's a time when God's simply going to say, okay, I'll let you do what you want to do. And it's never a good thing when that happens. But in this particular case, Pharaoh was an an enemy of God. Pharaoh thought he was God, by the way. The the Pharaohs believed that they were the earthly incarnation of Ra, the sun god. And in this particular case, Pharaoh didn't want to bow a knee to anybody. Who is this God that I should serve him, he would say to Moses. Well, he found out who he was. And his hard-heartedness, when God gave him over to his own hard heart, it caused the destruction of his entire army. 
we know they all perished in the Red Sea. Now, Brian, let me ask you a question. I'm going to bring it up many thousands of years. Is it fair for God to sentence somebody to an eternity in hell when, in fact, that person has rebelled against God, wanting to be independent from God his or her whole life? Too often we get, though, I can't believe a loving God would send anybody to hell. He doesn't. God simply honors the choices we make on earth. He honors those same choices in eternity. What would not be fair is for God to force people to go to heaven who didn't want anything to do with God. You see, Jesus, the presence of Jesus, that's what we call heaven. And Jesus said, when we get to heaven, there's not going to be anything dark. There's not going to be anything evil. There's not going to be any more pain or agony. There's not going to be any more injustice. That's what we've got to do, Brian, is make the decision here in this life about to whom we belong and who we're going to serve. So not unfair at all. God was patient, uh, going overboard, Brian, to give Pharaoh ample opportunity to bow a knee. He simply refused to do it. You know, Philippians, Paul says, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, that's the problem that Pharaoh didn't want to have to deal with. So I hope that helps, Brian. Thank you for the question. Here is our next question. comes from Yoli. She says, what is your view on the timing of the rapture? Yoli, um, my view is that the, that the rapture is going to happen before the Great Tribulation. Uh, our view is pre-trib. We're also pre-mill. Um, and, and simply put, we're, we're, we, we take that view because that's what the Bible teaches. Um, the Great Tribulation is God's judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. You see, those of us who are in the church, and, and as you've heard me say probably only many times, I believe that Jesus is coming for his church at any moment. And the Bible declares as clearly as we can that it's impossible for God to judge those of us who have been made righteous by the blood of Christ. It's just, it's, it's an impossibility for God to deny his own character. And if God could judge us with his great wrath, that's what the great tribulation is, the time of Jacob's distress, it's described as a time that will be unequaled in terms of terror in this world. And God says, no, I can't pour out my wrath on people who are perfect. And we're perfect, Yoli. We're perfect. So just remember that. Just like uh, in Genesis when uh, 18, when um, 18 and 19, actually, during uh, the, the assault on Sodom and Gomorrah, there was one righteous man living in, in Sodom, Lot, he wasn't acting or living righteous, but he was he was righteous. We know that because Peter, um, um, empowered by the Holy Spirit, says that that he was right. That lot, lot, that righteous man, was vexed in his spirit at all the wickedness around him. And the angel grabbed him. It's interesting because in the Septuagint, which is the Greek uh, manuscript of, for for the Old Testament, uh, one of the most reliable manuscripts often quoted by the apostles in the New Testament. Um, the word is harpazo. He was snatched away. I cannot do anything until you're gone. And that's the same thing for us. As long as there are believers here, God cannot begin the Great Tribulation. It's very important we understand that. Paul says in writing to the churches in Thessalonica, for you're not appointed unto wrath, but unto salvation. Jesus told us in the Gospel of John that we should pray that we should be counted worthy to escape these things. And being worthy to escape that judgment doesn't mean that we're better than other people. It just means that uh, his righteousness having been given to us exempts us from the need to be judged. Personally, I like that. 
Good question, Yoli. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Misty. I like this question, Misty. Um, how do you respond to the claim that Isaiah had three separate authors instead of just one? Um, you know, Misty, when I first got saved, um, I've told this story before, but uh, there was a really, really outstanding Christian library uh, in the in the, uh, the the area I lived. So it was a place that I went to study. They'd let you come in, and, and I'd spend uh, 8, 10, 12 hours a day there. But it was a very, very liberal um, school of theology. I didn't know liberal from conservative. I didn't know anything about all that back then. So I just going through books and read them. And when I wanted to, to, to start studying Isaiah, I remember seeing books, first Isaiah, second Isaiah, and third Isaiah. And, and I thought, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. And uh, their, their conclusion was that Isaiah, now the reason they would say this is because Isaiah told the future. And he told it so perfectly, so specifically were his prophecies fulfilled that they believed that the people who said there were three authors, uh, they believe. and by the way, there are some that say there were only two authors written over a long period of time. Um, but when Jesus was on this earth, he quoted from all parts of the book of Isaiah. And while they didn't believe in the supernatural, they didn't believe that anybody could tell the future with that kind of exactness, um, Jesus quoted from all three parts. And he said, Isaiah the prophet wrote. So pretty much, Misty, I'm going to hang with Jesus here. And Isaiah does not have three separate authors, nor does the book have two separate authors, nor was it written hundreds of years after the fact and inserted in. And their claim is that, well, there was a need for encouragement and strengthening. By the way, they, they say the same thing about Daniel's book. Uh, they have a problem with the supernatural, believing that God could tell the end from the beginning, that God could be so perfect in fulfilling those prophecies. So it's easier just to dismiss it. But remember, Jesus is our standard. And he, he quoted from uh, from Isaiah more than any other book. Isaiah was Jesus' favorite book. And um, he quoted from the early parts, the middle parts, and the, long, the, the end parts of Isaiah. So Misty, um, good question. Uh, be very discerning. I think it's good to read uh, those points of view, um, uh, especially if you have if you have a lot of discernment. Um, but be really careful. Uh, don't be convinced by uh, secular arguments. Don't be convinced by people who don't believe in the miraculous. I have no problem believing that God knows the future and He can tell it as though He were telling talking about history. So uh, just be careful. But I think it's good for us to 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 sort of have a depth of knowledge in those kind of things because we're going to be um, have opportunities to minister to a lot of skeptics uh, in the uh, in the course of our service for the Lord. So there's only one Isaiah. I'm going to hang, as I said, with Jesus. Um, I'll just take him at his word. I think that's really important. Here's an anonymous question. I get this one from time to time. Do you believe God is only one perfect person for you to marry? Uh, for me, Anonymous, the answer is yes, it's Paula. Tonight, in fact, part of my study is going to be sort of my thanks to God for for uh, our life together, mine and Paula's, uh, a life serving the Lord. So uh, for me, yeah, there was only one. The problem is I didn't know it. And because my heart was so hard, and in fact, Paula's heart was pretty hard when we met, um, you know, we could have messed it up, but we didn't. God was faithful when we weren't. Um, God worked even our sin into his perfect plan. And so um, I look at the woman I'm married to and think, God, that was the one you had for me. In fact, Paula will tell you that when she opened the door the very first time we ever met, 
she heard a voice. Now, I'm sure it wasn't an audible voice, but, but just sort of the, the inner witness of Holy Spirit that she didn't even know. That voice told her, this is the one for life. And I don't know about life. We've been together for 50 years, uh, so that's the only one. Now, let me answer your question a little more specifically. Um, we can fall in love with a lot of different people. God knows the one you're going to marry. And anonymous, the one that you are married to is the perfect one for you. And a lot of times when people get saved, their marriages are kind of messy and we want somebody who, who will treat us better or be nicer to us. God says, when you come to me, you know that that's the perfect person for you. So make the marriage work. Be filled with the Spirit and make the marriage work. Now, if you're single, I know this is one of those things that people struggle with. Well, how do I know if he's the one or how do I know if she's the one? Well, the way you know, simple. Does this person bring you closer to God? Does the relationship center around him? Is the relationship pure? I've had people tell me in pre-marriage counseling that I know God brought us together and then I'll ask them, okay, so are you having sex? And I can always tell by the reaction if the answer to that question is yes. And they say, well, let me ask you a question. God brought this woman into your life or God brought this man into your life and, and, and this is the way you say thank you to God by defiling the relationship? So I think if you're waiting for one person you don't understand how God is going to work in your life. Honor God in the relationship you're in. And if you're not in a relationship, make sure that the man or the woman that you fall in love with is somebody who loves Jesus as much or more than you do. Make sure that he or she is a committed believer. And by that I mean it's not just lip service Christianity, but they actually have fruit coming from their lives. And if you'll do that, then you won't have any question or doubt about whether you married the right person. Let me say one final thing on this question. Um, I've had Christians, you know, who would, would try to sound so spiritual. They'd say things like, well, well I'm, I'm saved now, and my husband or my wife is not a believer, so I don't think that's the one God has for me, so I'm going to divorce them and find somebody else. That's not the way we get the person God has for us. If you're married to an unbeliever, 1 Peter chapter 3 is your set of instructions. Love him, love her, rightly represent Christ, be so full of the Spirit of God that, that he or she can see that there's something so beautiful in you and coming from you and that they are the beneficiary of that something. And when you do that, um, God's going to use your witness as a powerful tool to evangelize the unbelieving spouse. But stay in the position you're in unless or until the other person makes a decision to leave. If the unbeliever leaves, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, let him leave, let her leave. But if they're willing to stay, then be like Sarah who was obedient to God and obedient to her husband because that's what she was expected by God to do. So God has the person he knows you're going to marry. From a human perspective, there's a whole bunch of people that we could fall in love with. Here is a question I can do pretty quickly. We're almost to the end of the program, or the end of the first half of the program anyway. It Two is anonymous. Uh, she writes, I met a man I could fall in love with. I'm not sure what that means. He is a oneness believer, and I'm a Trinitarian. Is this okay? Anonymous, actually, I'm glad you asked, because no, it's not okay. A Trinitarian is not a, or, I'm sorry, a oneness believer is not a Christian. You can't change God. You can't mess with the character of God. And somebody who does not believe in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is three distinct, separate persons of the completely unified Godhead is not a real Christian. Now, they'll shout Jesus. A lot of times they're Jesus-only groups, and they'll, they'll use the right terms. Often they're very Pentecostal in, in outlook. 
but a oneness believer does not know God. Knows about him, but he's not known by God. God is one person, or one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So if you were to marry this man, then you would be in an unequally yoked relationship, and I promise you the, the, the result would be a ton of pain. Pain that God wants you to spare. So whatever you mean by a man you could fall in love with, uh, back away. And be courageous enough to tell him why you're doing it. Maybe God can use you to change his mind and heart. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. Again, the phones are quiet. Don't know what everybody's doing? 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word Center for Life. I'll be back in two minutes. If you have questions about the Bible, you can send them to Pastor Ron and he'll answer them on the air or reply directly to you. Email your questions to PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our program 340-9585 for your live calls and questions i'm going to start this half with three political questions uh, one sent in by Henry, one by Donald, and one by Mary. They're all distantly related to one another. So let me get this out of the way so we can talk about Jesus for the rest of the program. Henry says, How can I respond to people who are critical of me for voting for Trump? Henry, I think you don't worry about what people say. I don't think you voting for Trump is anybody's business but you and Jesus. So you vote for who you want according to your biblical conscience. And don't worry about what anybody says. You know, sometimes, Henry, and I don't, I don't know you, obviously, so um, and this isn't a personal judgment, but, but um, a lot of times people, well, how can I deal with people who don't like what I'm doing, uh, and yet they're on social media blasting to everybody what they're going to do. We like to debate, but we don't like it when we encounter resistance. The world that we live in is going to do anything and everything to defeat this president. And you can see that they're doing it. Um, just just think about conservative movie stars or conservative singers or, or, or musicians. I mean, their careers would go up in smoke if it became public knowledge that they were voting for Trump. So really, really important for you. You don't worry about what anybody thinks. This is between you and God. You vote your conscience. And somebody says, well, how did you vote? Tell me it's none of your business. And if you're the one who's causing these difficulties by, by uh, being on social media, um, then, then just get off. You don't need to do it. Donald's related question is, do you think Christians have made an idol of Trump? Now, see, here we go. Now, we've got just two opposite ends. Um, uh, I do think, Donald, that there are Christians who have made uh, President Trump an idol. They've made Republican politics an idol. And I think they really need to examine their hearts. Um, If we think Donald Trump is our savior, or that the world is going to fall apart without him, then we've put him in a position of of being worshipped as an idol. I I realize we're not worshipping, we're not offering things to him, nor are we singing songs to him. But remember, an idol is anything you put ahead of Christ. If you trust Trump more than you trust Christ, I want you to think about what I just said. Too often we trust Trump, but we have this view that if he loses, everything's going to fall apart. That's what happens with my next question. Well, then what we've got to do is we've got to realize that Jesus, you saved me. I believed you for salvation. Why don't I believe you? For controlling things in this world. So, Donald, I think Christians, too many of us, have made an idol out of Trump, out of politics, out of the Republican Party. I'm a very conservative guy. 
But at the same time, uh, as I said to the earlier question, if um, Joe Biden wins the presidency, if the, the Senate is turned over to the Democrats, uh, if the House remains in Democratic hands, Jesus is going to be in heaven wringing his hands thinking, oh my, what am I going to do now? So um, we need our perspective to be in heaven rather than on earth. And finally, Mary's question, she says, I'm terrified that the president will lose. My hope is waning. Um, Mary, there's a lot of people terrified that he's going to lose. Personally, I don't want him to lose. Uh, I, I, I'm mortified at the possibility of the left taking over this country and, 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 and the, the, the way things would change. But at the same time, if your hope is in President Trump, then you've got a faith issue. You've got a faith issue. Let me take a phone call. Maybe we'll come back to that last one a little bit. Let's go to Jonathan on line one from San Antonio. Jonathan, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. I, I love your show. I've never actually called into a radio show ever, so I'm a little nervous. But um, <laughs> I just wanted to see what the Bible said about female pastors or, or deaconesses, deacons, because there are some churches uh, that are, are pretty new that are I notice are springing up around San Antonio, mainly the the New Age churches. I, I, I see this as a common trend, in, and I just wanted to see how you can— if you can explain what the Bible says about that and why that is so, um, whatever the Bible states the the woman's role in the church is. I can do that, Jonathan. Thank you very, very much. First uh, Timothy chapter two, verse twelve says Paul. This is Paul writing, and the context here, Jonathan, is order in the church. This is how church should be done. And he says, "I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man in the church." Now, there's no way that we can mess that up. There's no way that that can be misunderstood. There's no way, uh, honest way, that it can be twisted into into saying anything other than what it says. This is the way it is in all my churches. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man in the church. So when you see churches with women pastors, those are churches who are out of the will of God. Now, Jonathan, it doesn't mean that they're not saved. It doesn't mean that they're not gifted. What it means is that they are rebelling against the order established by God, by Jesus Christ himself, who is the head of the church. And he goes to great lengths to talk about himself. He says, you know, the, the, the head of Christ is the Father, or is God. So Jesus, who is completely God, completely equal in eternity, he willingly subjected himself and continues for eternity to subject himself to the authority of his Father in heaven. And he says, look, I did that to set an example for you. And so women are not to be in church leadership in that sense. So um, pastors, elders, um, that is, is the purview of men, not because men are smarter, men are more spiritual, for no reason. It's just God gave us order, and we have to remember that that order was necessary because of the fall. It was never God's plan. God's perfect plan was for men and women to be completely equal, to work together as partners, especially husbands and wives. And yet we see a lot of wives who take the spiritual head, the leadership of their homes as well. So it just shouldn't be done. Now, every time you see a woman who is a pastor in a church, and that, that means the, the, the lead pastor or married to the pastor, but given the title of being a pastor, that is a church that's out of order and out of the will of God. doesn't mean people won't get saved there. It doesn't mean that, uh, that uh, they're, they're, they're not saved. What it means is that they're settling for less than God's best, and the people, Jonathan, who go to those churches are settling for way less than God's best. So First Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, there's no way to get around it. And people can say, and I've heard every excuse, well, um, I had one woman pastor tell me, we were at a pastor's conference, and it was very uncomfortable. She, she said, well, well, I think if God could trust a woman to bear, the, bear his son, then he could trust us to be pastors. 
Well, only women can have babies. So that's a specious argument. But, uh, well, I'm called. Uh, you can say what you want, but God I know called me. Well, but you're wrong. And that's how you can tell. So, Jonathan, avoid churches that have women pastors. Again, women teachers, the gift is given, but they're not to teach from a position of authority over men in the church. And whether you're the pastor, the co-pastor, then the authority you have over others is implied. It's very, very important. Secondly, yes, about deaconesses. There are women deaconesses mentioned in the early church. So women can be deaconesses. Um, Deacons are, are simply servants. And they're to be there to minister to the body. And certainly men and women do that. But uh, as it relates to pastoral ministry, it is exclusively male. The pastor must be the husband of but one wife, we're told. It doesn't say the wife of one husband. So again, all the references, all the pronouns are male in gender. So Jonathan, thank you for calling and getting over your nervousness. I appreciate it very, very much. <laughs> thank you, Ron. Okay, does that answer it? Okay, we lost him that time. Okay, thank you very, very much. Um, You know, I want to get back to the question that Mary sent in a moment ago when she says she's terrified. I I want to call Christians to a moment of clarity. Um, I believe that if Jesus were to come back right after the election, saw all of these Christians wringing their hands about how um, um, evil has taken over the world, and what are we going to do now? I think Jesus would say to us what he said to his disciples on multiple occasions when he would look at them and say, Oh, ye of little faith. Again, I don't want Joe Biden to win. I don't want the Senate to go into Democrat hands. But if that happens... How weak would my faith be if that destroyed my walk with the Lord or if I suddenly started cowering in fear? I think we need to remember, Christians, that our light never shines brighter than it does in the darkness. And if this country's direction takes a tragic turn, then we've got to be about the business of telling people about Jesus. Because he's the only hope. He's the only answer. And it is troubling when I get questions like yours, Mary. It's troubling when I see such little faith in the power of God. God sets up kings. He deposes kings. The same thing is true, of course, in a modern culture with presidents and senators and congressmen. But whoever wins isn't God saying, okay, he's my man. That's not it at all. God's saying we need to respect the position of authority. And he established those positions of authority. But make no mistake, there's been some really rotten people sit in those positions of authority. So we need, Mary, to be really, really careful about our perspective. Let's go to a question from Brian, not the same Brian we had earlier different spelling. Uh, Pastor Ron, what leadership training do you think is necessary for a pastor in a church? And what do you do in your church to develop leaders? Um, Brian, that's that's a a big question. I could spend the rest of the time talking about it and I won't do that. Um, But developing leaders is first and foremost identifying who they are, trying to to identify uh, the, the men that God has his hand on. And that's really pretty easy to see. We've been here for 25 years. We've planted, I think, 33 churches. Uh, getting ready to plant another one um, probably early next year. Um, but it's, it's pretty easy to look out and see the, the men that God has touched. You see they've got a servant's heart. You see that they're excited about the opportunity to serve the Lord no matter what they're doing, no matter where it is. They're as faithful to serve in little tiny things, um, invisible ministries, as they are in public ministries. So I think the first thing is identifying the men that God has given leadership gift to. Um, The second thing I do 
when I see that man is I watch his wife, I watch the marriage for a long time, six months to a year. I watch the marriage. I want to see if, if the man is rightly representing Christ in his home. I want to see that his wife, and if he's if they have children, I want to see that his wife and children are growing in the Lord. I want to see order in their home. And, and I would never consider ordaining someone whose marriage was in a mess. And there are a lot of people, who, men who love God with all their heart and the wives simply not on board. That's not a man that I would ever develop. Now, in terms of the discipleship that we do, we've been doing the same thing here, Brian, for almost, I'm going to guess, 23 and a half of our 25 years. Uh, I have a pastor's discipleship class. We do it every other Saturday. Now, it's been on hiatus during the, um, the, the quarantine break, the COVID break. Um, but... Um, it's every other Saturday from 10.30 to 12.30. Uh, and, and I just get really, really raw with, the, with the, the people there. Now, it started out with just the men, but it sort of developed over the years so their wives can come. But we also have other people, men and women, who are single who come. There's probably 70 or so people uh, who come to that class. And um, we don't. there's nothing that we don't talk about. Um, sometimes it's Bible study, sometimes it's just me sharing my heart. Most of the time it's just, okay, God, what do you want to say to these people? And it's preparing them. It's asking them to make sacrifices. And the, and the really great thing about it is is they can count the cost of saying yes to God, to being in a leadership role. I think too often we have um, an idea about leadership. Well, well, then I'll get to be the one doing the Bible studies and people will listen to me. If that's your motive, then you don't understand leadership at all. Uh, I share everything with them. I don't think there's anything that we've held back from from these people. They know everything about my past. Um, we know about their their past. Um, together, we can talk about the gifts that God has given. And um, I, I just I just pour myself out to them. And we've been doing it a long time. Every pastor that we have on staff, every pastor that we've sent out to pastor a church. Um, every person in leadership position has come from that class. Everyone, no exceptions. And it gives me a chance to know who they are, what God has called them to do. I offer my time to help them accomplish what God's will is in their life. And it gives us a wonderful opportunity to to really, really get to know people. Now, not everybody kind of hangs in there. But we get to identify those who might not work out before they ever get a chance to be sort of rushed into a position of leadership. So that's what we do here. And um, I, I watch them. I, I expect a lot from them. They know that. And uh, it, it's worked really, really well for us. So, Brian, that's that's what we do here at Calvary Chapel. Let me say this one last thing. Um if you are that pastor in a church and you're looking to develop leaders, um, you have to lead by example. You can't be one who simply tells people what to do. They've got to be able to follow your example. And if they can't follow your example, then you're not leading them. You're not discipling them. One other thing. I know I said that was the last thing, but I just thought of this. Brian, you have to have faith. and You have to demonstrate faith. Your life has got to be a testimony to the faithfulness of God. And by that I mean you trust Him. You just can't say no to Him. Who would follow a pastor who doesn't know where he's going? A pastor who keeps changing directions or keeps changing course? I don't know anybody who would do that. So you've got to be somebody that's followable. Thank you for the the question. Let's go to line one from Scottsdale, I think, Arizona, from Timothy. Timothy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yeah, Ron, I just wanted to comment on what you were saying about Joe Biden possibly winning. Um, mm-hmm. I keep thinking of the words that Christ told Pontius Pilate. Uh, you have no authority for that which has been given to you by God, and he is in control. Mm-hmm. So there's great comfort in that. I just wanted to, to share that. Timmy, that's a, that's, a, that's a great reference. Thank you very, very much. 
Um, and uh, whoever wins, including your candidate, whoever that is, is going to be held accountable by Jesus for what he does with the opportunity. So uh, I agree. Very good observation, Timothy. Thank you. Are you calling from Scottsdale, Arizona? No, Stockdale, Texas. He, he, I pronounced it wrong when I oh, okay. talked to the preview guy. So it's okay. about 30 minutes from San Antonio. Okay, good. Okay. Well, I got excited. We, we lived for 12 years, Paul and I did, in the Phoenix area. So uh, we know the area there very much and love it. So thank you for calling. I appreciate it, Timothy. Okay. Take care now. Uh-huh. Ted says, Pastor Ron, what is the unforgivable sin? Ted, the unforgivable sin, the unpardonable sin, the Bible calls it, is uh, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's not blaspheming. God, you're not the, the Holy Spirit. You're not God. That's not what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Remember, Jesus said the Spirit, when he comes, will testify of me. He will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. If we die in a condition having rejected the testimony of the Holy Spirit, having rejected the conviction of the Holy Spirit, well, then that's the unforgivable sin because there's no remedy for sin left. It's appointed unto men once to die and then face the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27 says. And if we die in unbelief, there's no remedy for sin left. So that's what the 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 blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, the unforgivable or, or the unpardonable sin. It's dying without Jesus. He keeps reaching out. He keeps knocking on the door of hearts. He keeps revealing himself uh, to people. And if we die without responding to his call to repentance, his call to Christ, then there's no way to have any other any of our sins forgiven. Again, because there's no remedy left for sin. Thanks, Ted. I appreciate that. Bill says, and this will probably be the last question I get to today. Bill says, can the gifts of the Spirit operate in a carnal Christian uh, or a carnal church? Um, Bill, uh, yeah, um, we're, we just started, if, I don't know if you heard the program at the beginning of the week, we just started in uh, 1 Corinthians on Sunday mornings, and, um, and the whole church in Corinth was carnal, and the gifts of the Spirit were operating. But I think the distinction needs to be made that when you see gifts operating or the appearance of gifts operating in a carnal location, carnal church, or a carnal Christian, then those gifts are being counterfeited. Um, An example is the gift of tongues. When you walk into a church and everybody's speaking in tongues, um, then then, um, that that gift is being counterfeited. We We can do that. The enemy is a counterfeiter. You're always trying to do what Jesus did. Uh, our flesh is is willing to comply, um, and so we can fool ourselves. You know, I can speak in tongues, get a couple of goosebumps, saying, "Oh, okay, I'm okay." But you know, if you're not being obedient to the Lord, then there's no power of the Holy Spirit, so you're not plugged in to the source of that power. And then whatever you're doing is simply in the flesh, and that's that's a counterfeit expression of the gifts. One of the things that we always need to remember is that obedience, Acts 5.32 says, is the trigger for the power of the Spirit in your life. God gives the Spirit to those who obey Him. And there is no power of the Spirit, there is no genuine move of the Spirit in the life of a Christian who um, is in disobedience to the Lord. It's that simple. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of like trying to talk on your cell phone when there's like 1% left and you're going to run out of power. Well, if you're in disobedience, if you're out of order, then you have no power at all. And so anything that comes, people can say spiritual sounding things. They can claim that they're prophets of God. They can claim that they're apostles of God. But if they're living in sin, if they're living in disobedience, then they're just pretending. They can tell stories about what God has done in the past. They can counterfeit the gift of tongues. Um, they can they can say spiritual sounding things. The truth of the matter is, is there's no power because there's no connection to the Spirit. So if you are being disobedient, that's the very definition of a carnal Christian, then any move of the Spirit is counterfeited 
it's your own strength, which is, is woefully weak, rather than the power of God who's operating behind it. Now, the gifts of the Spirit are wonderful. We want to walk in the gifts all the time. It's just impossible to do, Bill, when we're disobedient to the Lord. So that's something I think that we've got to remember all the time. Thank you for the question. How are we doing on time? Just over Oop, a little over a minute. Okay, I think maybe I can do one more. Michelle says, what does it mean that the last days will be like the days of Noah? Um, in the days of Noah, Jesus said people were partying, just carrying on like life was going to go on forever. Uh, they didn't believe the testimony of Noah, so they kept marrying and giving in marriage, and uh, but, but they didn't realize that the judgment was coming upon them. Well, we live in that time, Michelle. You see the world going absolutely crazy in rebellion against God. People are talking about uh, doing whatever they want with their bodies. Uh, we're, we're living in those times, like the days of Noah. And uh, the time is going to come when the Christians are taken out of here and the judgment of God is going to come just as surely as the judgment of God came upon the people to whom Noah had been preaching for a very, very long time. Thank you for the question. Hey, appreciate uh, you being with us today. Remember, tomorrow is the Date Day program, which means beautiful Paul is going to be live in studio with me. Ladies, it is your day. May the Lord bless you and keep you. You've been listening to The Word to Stand In For Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.